Criminal and civil court cases, often witnesses are summoned to appear in court, given a subpoena by defense attorney or prosecuting attorney. And when the witness is there, they can often be a key part of how a trial goes. But a skilled lawyer can often find some flaw in the testimony, some flaw in the character, something wrong with what the witness says and an objection to it. Well, in Malachi chapter 2, the Lord is going to bear witness. There are no flaws here. He doesn't have a memory loss. He doesn't remember or he doesn't forget what time of day it was. When he bears witness to something, he does it with impeccable character and with precision knowledge because he knows all details, all things. So we read in Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And this have you done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it with goodwill at your hand. Yet you say, Wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of your covenant. The Lord bears witness is my subject this morning. We look now at the third dispute, and again, we didn't start with number one. We went to number four and worked our way back to one, and now we're at number three. And the dispute here has to do with how the Israelites were looking, viewing, and actually doing marriage. To the point that God says, when you bring your offering to the altar. Now he's beginning with the priest in chapter 2, and then it worked its way down to the members of the covenant community called Israel. So the priests were the main problem in chapter 2, but then that started to flow out through all the congregation of Israel. And God says, I'm not regarding, I have no pleasure in your offering anymore. Why? Because of your marriages and how they're going. That's pretty startling, isn't it? Imagine coming here Sunday after Sunday and God said, I'm not even looking, I'm not even regarding your singing and your worship because I've been a witness to how you've been treating your wife or we could say wives and how you've been dealing with your husband. And so this section will divide into three different kinds of treachery because God says that's the problem. It's you have dealt treacherously with the wife of your youth. The word means faithless, not being loyal, not being constant and committed. So, so three ways this treachery was expressed itself. The Lord bore witness in who they were marrying. There was something wrong there. The Lord is bearing witness in how they were doing marriage with their companion, the wife of their youth, in their covenant. And then thirdly, the Lord was bearing witness to them putting away their wives in divorce, which he says, I hate divorce. That just means God hates it. And that should get our attention, shouldn't it? God hates putting away. It's not to say there's not forgiveness there's not to say that Christ doesn't cover all sin through faith and repentance, but God goes on record saying, this is my witness, I hate 
divorce. And that means you should hate it too. You should hate it too. So first, let's look at the treachery, the faithlessness of the priest and Israel in who they were marrying. We start in verse 11, or 10 rather. Have we not all one father? Implied answer, rhetorical question. Yes, we do. Hath not one God created us? Yes, He has. Why do we deal treacherously or faithlessly every man against thy brother? By profaning the covenant of our fathers. Now, first, Malachi begins with a general treachery. But he's going to work himself to the next verse and bring it to marriage. A general treachery and how they were treating one another. Now, the word father means originator, producer, generator. Of course, creator means the Almighty. So there's a sense in which God can be called a father to all humanity. Because He is the Creator. He's the originator. He gives birth to every single human person on the planet because He creates them. And so that sense, He is a Father to all humanity. Because He's the originator of every person that comes into being. And He creates them. But here, the reference is to treachery by profaning or treating as common the covenant of thy fathers. Plural. That would be Abraham... Isaac and Jacob. And so what Malachi is pointing to is the origin of the nation of Israel. One Father and one God Creator brought the nation into existence for His holy purposes. The question then, considering we have the same origin as a covenant community, we have the same Creator that brought us into existence as a nation for Israel, why then do we not honor the spiritual unity from God the Father in how we deal with one another. Now, this is a first general description of treachery. We could ask that question as believers today. Seeing we have the same Savior and the same Father who's given birth to every believer in the covenant community called the church, why do we then deal faithlessly And do not honor the unity of God the Father that works itself out in a covenant-keeping relationship in church that the Spirit establishes that we are commanded to maintain. You remember Ephesians 4.1. I beseech you, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with all longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring, laboring to keep the unity of the Spirit, the oneness of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Seven ones. One, one, one. Why then do we not labor to maintain the oneness of the Spirit in the bond of peace? The bond there is... Like an emulsifier. You know when you bake a cake at home? The emulsifier serves to cause the oil and water to mix sufficiently and stay together. Or they just remain apart. It's through lowliness and meekness, gentleness. Long-suffering, that means we're slow to anger. Of course, those are in the covenant community of church and marriage, right? Slow to anger. To take provocation right in the face and just 
look past it. That comes from the Spirit, doesn't it? Forbearing, not retaliating, but enduring covenant relationships. Enduring it, not walking away from it, not departing from that relationship. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how difficult it is, because we have one Father, one Savior, one Spirit, so we should labor at all costs unless we have sufficient reason from Scripture to walk away to keep that unity that the Spirit gives. We, we don't, we're not trying to gain it. We maintain it because He alone gives it in the Savior. We should labor to keep the bond of peace. Peace is that which unites love together and, and it's like the adhesive, the glue, the emulsifier that keeps the church together and it keeps a marriage together. And so the first thing Malachi does is just points to a general treachery that was taking place in Israel because when we lose the fear of God, we no longer love God. And we no, no longer love God, then we have a me-centered view of life, a me-centered view of church. It's not going my way. And I'm, I'm leaving these people. A me-centered view of marriage. It's not going to happen my way. Serve my purpose. I'm out. I'm gone. I'm not staying in this covenant relationship. So, Malachi introduces a general kind of faithlessness to then bring us to the point of marital unfaithfulness. Not the kind that departs, first of all, but the kind that marries the wrong pay, uh, person because there's a, there's a faithlessness first to God and the covenant He established with Israel. And we could then transfer that to you and I today as believers. So, what does he say? Verse 11, Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. Now, the, the chiastic form here, the structure is an A-B-B-A. The point is, when you see those in the Bible, is to draw your attention to the center, the two B's, that give rise to the two A's. So A, Judah has dealt faithlessly. B, abomination is committed in Jerusalem and in Israel. B again, what is that abomination? Judah has profaned the holiness of God. Back to A, married the daughter of a strange God. So Malachi wants to focus our attention on profaning the holiness of God. That's the root issue that gives rise to the two A's. A, B, B, A's, which is what? The faithlessness of then is you marry the wrong person. Israel is treating as common God's holiness, which God loves, and God loves His holiness. God is committed to His own honor. God loves His perfections. God loves His purity over everything. And they were profaning God's holiness by acting faithlessly toward God in marrying the daughter of a strange God. Now what that doesn't mean is that they literally married the daughter of a foreign God. The word strange means foreign. 
It was not against the covenant to marry a foreigner. Moses married an Ethiopian woman. And Boaz married Ruth the Moabitess, which was a foreign woman. But only after she had come to trust under the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. You see, to marry the daughter of a foreign god is to marry a person who's devoted to another god and devoted to another religion. That was the problem. Jezebel, case in point. That was a bad marriage for Ahab, wasn't it? Solomon, who married multiple wives. Not just foreigners, but daughters of foreign gods. They were devoted to, they worshipped, they sought after foreign gods. And so God says when that happens, we are profaning His holy purpose for marriage. Now for the believer today, that would mean to marry an unbeliever. Right? It's to marry someone who doesn't love God. For which you profess to love. It's to marry someone who doesn't trust Christ or see Him as a treasure. Which you profess as a believer to do so. How would that even work? And that's the point, isn't it? Look back at Deuteronomy 7 for which was read in our scripture reading, where God commands that this mixed marriage not take place. He said, when you go into the land, they were to destroy all these different nations of the Canaanites, or the land of Canaan. And then verse 3, when they were to come into the land, they were utterly to destroy them. Make no covenant, don't show mercy to them. Verse 3, neither shalt thou make marriages with them, thy daughter... Thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. Why? For they will turn away your son from following me, that they may serve other gods. I didn't say, now the potential is there. You know, this could happen. They will turn them away. Thus saith the Lord. To serve the foreign God. What are the gods that are served today? The God of money, the God of wealth, the God of athletics, the God of entertainment, the God of creation. See, to marry an unbeliever is to marry someone who is under the sway of the wicked one. A person whose desires are fully towards the gods of this world. They have nothing within them that would move them in the direction of Christ, apart from grace. Yet you as a believer have something in you that moves in the direction of Christ, but you have something in you that what? Moves into the direction of idolatry. It's hard enough struggle, isn't it? To guard your heart against idolatry with a spouse that believes like you. How is it then possible... For you not to be drawn into idolatry when you marry someone who's committed to a strange God, the gods of this world. So let me speak to every single person here this morning. And if you're a person who doesn't want to be married, and maybe you have the gift of singleness, then 
God withholds no good thing from those that walk uprightly. Your life can be just as fulfilling apart from it, apart from marriage. There, there's nothing God will withhold from you for life and godliness to those that walk uprightly. But just assuming most of you will be and want to be, in a very short time, then you will be married. Typically happens earlier in life. Now here's some things I want you to think about. First of all, prepare yourself now to listen to counsel. Because if you wait, you won't. Over 20 years in ministry, time and time again, people show up. Show up to parents, show up to pastors, show up to elders and say, this is who I'm going to marry. It's too late. I already know it's too late. No matter what is seen, no matter what counsel is given, nine out of ten times it's too, case, uh, too late because they weren't prepared to receive counsel. All the ways children seek counsel from their parents and from other people over money matters and college and majors. And when it comes to this one issue, they just kind of show up and here he or she is. Now, I recognize sometimes parents can want you to marry the person they want you to marry when you have no interest in them. And parents, we need to be careful about that. But you've got to prepare now to listen. Because your passions will blind you. They'll blind you. So right now, begin to think, I need to listen to counsel. I need to talk to people that love the Lord, who know the Scripture, that can give me things to watch out for. Now, if it's a person you know and trust, they're not after you in a way to, to make your life miserable. See? The people that love you. And so, be humble and ask the questions from the people that love you who want to see you in a marriage that magnifies God and gives you the joy of the Lord, which will be your strength. So think about that ahead of time. The next thing you need to do is you should give enough time to know the person outside the context of the happy dates and the flowers, right, and all the smiles. What is this man about and what is this woman about? How does this man treat his mother? Well, that's an indicator, isn't it? He's going to treat you the same way. How does this woman interact with her siblings? What is this person about in the the normal milieu and context of life? Yes, there are flaws. You have flaws. There are no perfect people. But signs and warnings before marriage will go right into marriage with you. They don't stop when you say, I do. And if you're married, you, you know that's true. So it's not about finding just the perfect person that uh, the only person, such person on the planet. It's about listening and it's about giving time to see flaws that are there in both people in a way that nothing is substantial or something that comes up that this is who this person really is about. That's who they are. 
Next, you should know they are committed to growing in the Lord. Do they pray at all? Now, there are Christians who have been Christians a long time that still struggle with that. Don't pray as they should. Maybe don't pray at all. So again, it's not about a perfect prayer life. It's just, are they committed to growing in the direction of Jesus Christ? Man may say, you know, I'm not doing very well at that. I'd, li- I'd like to grow in that. Do they love Jesus Christ? That's, that's the biggest question. And have they demonstrated a love for Christ? Is there a willingness there? Not are the, have they arrived... Not not is everything just as it ought to be. Is the word of God of any interest to that person? If it's not now, it won't be then. And how can you have a oneness of relationship with an unbeliever, obviously? Of course, we're talking about preparing for marriage with a believer. But if you marry someone that's an unbeliever, well, there's no interest in prayer. There's no interest in the word. And they may go to church with you just to go to church with you to get the prize. And so it's being objective and cautious and aware. Because God says they will turn you away from the Lord, not to Him. Of course, He's talking about, again, the daughter of a foreign God. Someone devoted to the God of self. And then you should be looking for something other than beauty. Oh, you should be looking for something other than beauty. Now, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That's why you guys sometimes look at a relationship and say, I don't know what she saw in him. You know, because you didn't get the catch, right? And what you mean is, she saw it. Whatever it was, she saw it because beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But beauty is a surface thing. Beauty is deceitful. Beauty is temporary. But the beauty of the soul remains. So, guys... Don't be focused on outward things alone. Because if you are, you're entering a me-centered kind of marriage because it's all about you. It's all about your eyesight and what you want out of the marriage. You just want her to look a certain way. So the marriage is already being built on your selfish desires. I never met anybody who didn't want to be attracted in some way to some feature of the person they married. Right? We're talking... Looking at simply areas external and not something internal. The daughter of a strange God. Now look what he says furthermore in Deuteronomy 7. Verse 5. But thus shall ye deal with them, and ye shall destroy their altars, and break down their images, and cut down their groves, and burn their graven images with fire. Now that's the nation going into Canaan. Because you are a holy people unto the Lord your God, the Lord your God hath chosen that to be a special people unto Himself. How would that work with an unbeliever? You would be working against the very holy purpose of God in marriage, in marrying someone who's not being drawn to God, which is the whole purpose of being a chosen, holy people unto the Lord God. He calls you to holiness. And then when you're married, He calls you both to holiness. So one wants to seek God, one doesn't. What happens? They both don't, according to the text. 
So prepare yourselves now that when the emotion and the butterflies and the loosey-goosey feeling comes, that you're thinking objectively with a sanctified mind in these ways so that you make a grave mistake because God hates putting away. With the exception of a singular reason. So it's a marriage for life. It's a marriage for life. So Malachi is addressing then, first of all, who they were marrying, but it goes deeper than that because they weren't doing their marriages correctly, and then they were, of course, putting away their wives to marry the daughter of a strange God. So we find again in verse 13, he says, And this have you done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with crying, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering anymore. He doesn't receive it with goodwill or pleasure at your hand, first the priest. Yet you say, why? Imagine that. This kind of treachery, and they're still disputing with God. We don't get it. Why aren't you taking our offerings? We're bringing the offerings. Because the Lord hath been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Now there's four features that Malachi gives us of how to do marriage that's rather unique to the Bible. Now Ephesians 5 would speak of this in a New Testament way and would bring out different aspects of these things. But but four things here that Malachi is going to say about marriage because they were dealing faithlessly with how they were doing marriage. Uh, marriage before they did put away their wives. Number one, God is the witness to your vows. That needs to be remembered, doesn't it? You know, often there's an assembly of people that come together and they are going to give silent, symbolic witness to helping you keep those vows. I've been to weddings where someone would stand up and give verbal witness. We here are giving witness to these vows and we're committed to help you to keep those vows and keep you on the pathway of what marriage means. But what we need to remember, there's really only an audience of one. And that's God Himself. He joined you together, and He will join you together if you're to be married. And He says, let not man put asunder. Do not sever it. No man to sever. So God is a witness. We remember He witnesses that. We remember He's witnessing how you do marriage. Because it's a reflection of something he's highly concerned about. His own holiness. And the gospel is being reflected in how we do marriage. Not perfectly. Two sinners coming together in a one flesh relationship called marriage. We're pursuing the same end, the same goals, or the same goal rather, in magnifying God's holiness, His grace in that relationship. So God is the witness to our vows. We make them before Him. We keep them to Him alone as we keep them to one another. And Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes 5.5, 5, It's better not to make a vow than to make it and not to pay it. God holds us accountable. The second feature is that she is the wife of your youth. What does that mean? Well, Malachi is calling to their attention the early days of marriage. The word youth means vigor, vigor, energy, enthusiasm. You remember those days if you've 
been married very long. That was an enthusiasm. You did some crazy, ridiculous things. You drove some miles. You probably wouldn't want to tell it. You spent time on the phone. And young people, there were no cell phones and unlimited talk time. You paid long distance by the minute. That was painful. It was worth every second. I'm going to tell you some of my bills. The energy and the enthusiasm of the wife of your youth. But what happened? Distractions, responsibilities, cares, routineness of life, and the enthusiasm's gone. What's God saying? You have no enthusiasm for the wife of your youth or the husband of your youth. Let me suggest some reasons why. One, it could be if you've lost enthusiasm for your bride or your husband, in some way you've lost enthusiasm in the Lord. Is that not a causal connection? Because if we love the Lord, the upshot is you love one another. If you're relating to the Lord in His grace, the difficulties, the hardships, you're able to love others. How much more in the covenant called marriage? And so it could be that the enthusiasm for Christ is waning a bit. Just could be. Not charging anyone here. Could be other reasons, but I would say start there. Revelation 2, when Jesus speaks of the church at Ephesus and talks about their works and they had tried apostles that said there were and found them wanting. And, and the good things, he says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you. You've left your first love. Repent, therefore, and do the first works. First love produces first works, which is an energy and an enthusiasm in that context for the Lord that apparently was waning even though they were active in doing things. They had left their first energetic, enthusiastic love for Christ. And He calls them back to it for their good. Not for His good. It's for your good. So if you've lost that enthusiasm, you need to do the first works that you did when you were so enthusiastic about your bride or about your husband. What were some of those first works? You took her out. Smiled a lot. Said things to her of encouragement. Was that just to win the prize? Was it just to get the I do so you could go back to being the kind of person you really were? God says, I've borne witness... Treachery, faithlessness against the wife of your youth, you've lost enthusiasm. And we know for, for, from Malachi's because you've lost enthusiasm, you've lost interest, you've lost the fear of the Lord. And when that goes, all relationships become like a black hole. Sorry about that. Like a black hole. Just sucks everything near it. So they had been dealing treacherously against the wife of their youth. Next, companionship. 
against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion. She's your companion. What does that mean? It's a person that accompanies someone often, regularly. But it also can be a pair of things that complement each other. Companion. By complement, I mean C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T, not C-O-M-P-L-I-M-E-N-T. See, for men, it's always, or often the I, isn't it? She compliments me. She makes me look good. She praises me. No, she's a complementary companion, which means together the pair does something that singularly neither one could do. We see this in the very beginning when God had created marriage in Genesis 2. He said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make an help meet for him, a help suitable. Now we pointed out before that the reason it wasn't good for man to be alone is because he was alone. He wasn't. He had the God of glory that he walked with. The God of glory that satisfied every desire. No, it wasn't good to be alone because he doesn't have a helper. The word help means just someone to help. Help him complete the picture. He couldn't do it. Singularly, he can't complete the picture. And in God's purpose and design for marriage, he needs to help me to complete the picture. He doesn't need an employee. He doesn't need a servant. He doesn't need a child. He needs a help meet so that he can complete the picture of marriage. And so when Adam had had a deep sleep come upon him, God took the rib from him, fashioned the woman. Adam said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You should be called woman. For she was taken out of the man. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. Wife and woman are the same Hebrew word. What changes in the context is that now he cleaves to the woman as a companion. Ishi is the word. It's the same Hebrew. But now she's a wife because the purpose has changed to a complementary role. Where each husband and wife fulfill a specific role in which they will complete a picture. And that's what we see so wonderfully in Ephesians chapter 5. Of course, Malachi was written before this, so they didn't have the information concerning Christ. But now we know that Genesis 2 was written not as, a, as kind of an afterthought concerning Christ and His church, but Christ and His church preceded and is the purpose for the relationship called marriage. So we see in Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, on that basis, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Everything. So the wife gets her signal for her role from the church. It is often called complementarianism because in this view of marriage, both husband and wife have equal worth, equal salvation in the eyes of the Lord, but not equal roles. Egalitarianism says husband and wife have equal salvation, equal worth, and they equally can be in those roles. It's not defined by gender, but by ability. 
Well, I confess, if it's by ability, then surely several women could occupy roles of eldership and head of the home. But it's not according to ability. It's according to what God says. And he says, wives get their cue from the church. Therefore, the role is that of submission to the headship of the husband as the church is submissive to the headship of Christ. I mean, that's as clear as can be, isn't it? And then what about the husbands? Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. Where do we get our cue? From Christ, who's the head. He's the loving head. And so we get our signal for what we're to be in the relationship from the headship of Christ and His loving care, protection, and gentleness, and love for His bride. And the two are complementary. Because two heads can't complete the picture and two submissives can't complete the picture. You need someone in the role of headship, someone in the role of submission, together to make the picture of what Paul calls in verse 31, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So when this was stated in Genesis 2, what God had in mind was a relationship that preceded a husband and a wife called Christ and the church. And then the marriage relationship that complements one another is then to give rise and complete the picture of the loving, dedicated, committed covenant that Jesus has with His bride for which He will never break and how He loves and how the church loves that love and submits to that in roles that come together in a oneness of relationship. A oneness that pictures that. Or as we sang, to the whole world sees the Redeemer in your marriage. That's the aim. In a covenant relationship of companionship. Where there's love, there's submission, there's oneness. There's joy. There's love, there's peace, there's trial, there's sanctification, there's growth, there's tears together, there's growth together to complete this picture. And so, God is witness to their lack of enthusiasm and love for the wife of their youth and their lack of being companions. They were putting them away. They had lost interest. They had lost enthusiasm because they had lost interest in God Himself and lost enthusiasm in the holiness of God. And then last, the fourth feature that Malachi gives us is that of covenant. Yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Covenant. See, your marriage is not based on a contract that you can break. It's based on a covenant before God. So what sustains the marriage and keeps it going, even when it's really, really bad, and it can be, is not your emotional love. It's the covenant you made with God. The emotional love, it goes, and it comes, and it goes, and it's there one day, and then, you know, the husband does something, and it just drops through the through the floor it's not there see if we based our marriage on a contract that how we if we felt loving and felt like he loved me i loved him you would get divorced and remarried multiple times you've made a covenant that god demands that you keep 
And we trust in His grace to keep it. This is not a covenant you can keep in your own strength. You have a, a Savior called Christ who's with you to keep you, to help you, to grow in this covenant relationship called companionship. Now let's look at an application here. Twice then, Malachi is going to say in verse 15 and 16, Therefore take heed to your spirit. Take heed to your spirit. Spirit is a disposition. So if we speak first to husbands, we would say, Take heed that you be not bitter against your wife. Colossians 3.19 Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. What that tells us is that husbands, you have the very real potential and probably are at times bitter towards your wife. Because God places bitterness in contrast to love. And that's, that's all he says in Colossians. Be not bitter because you are. And because you are at times. Or it wouldn't make sense. See, God is a witness against us. He knows how easy it is for us to be bitter. You know? Bitter is like a harsh, disagreeable, unpleasant taste in your mouth. Like the first time you tried Hershey's unsweetened cocoa. And you, were, you marveled that a, a container that had Hershey on it could be so bad. I still remember the day my mother, I just wore her out saying, Can, can I have some of that? And she said, Here, yeah, have it. I I thought I was going to... It was terrible. But you see, men, it's harder for us just to detect when we're bitter by by a taste. Because it's so easy for us to justify our bitterness, our harshness, that we are so uh, easy and and, and such a potential for us to do. So we, we have to think about in ways that we may be Bitter. Sometimes our bitterness is not verbalized. It's something within. We tell ourselves we're, we're frustrated, we're angry, we're bitter, and we're harsh because she, she doesn't work half as hard as I do at this marriage. She never sees herself. She's blind to everything she does. And so you're, 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 you're bitter either because of her perceived or her real weaknesses. And that's all you can see. And so what, what secretly is happening, you're bitter or openly you're going to try to persuade her with your physical, mental strength. Intimidation. Because you're, you're probably larger. And you're a firm kind of leader. Maybe that's how you justify it. I'm, I'm just a firm leader. You know? I'm, I'm lovingly firm. And all the ways we tell ourselves we're, we're not really harsh, we're not bitter, when in fact God says, you probably are. So He says... Take heed to your disposition. Look within and ask yourself, are you being harsh with the bride you've been called to love? And repent. God says to repent. If you want to know you're bitter, here's a painful thing to do. Ask yourself. Ask your wife. Do you like spending time with me? Well, no, not really. (laughs) Am I an encouragement to you? Do you think I'm harsh? And then listen and hear what she says. God says, take heed to your spirit. Take heed to your spirit. And for both, and maybe for sisters, we could say, take heed to an unforgiving spirit. An unforgiving spirit. Let all... 
bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even for God as Christ's sake hath forgiven you. An unforgiving spirit. I will not forgive and God will not forgive you. He goes on record saying that. There's something desperately wrong with the heart that will not forgive horizontally when someone repents and says, will you forgive me? God says, there's a problem this way then. There's a problem vertically. For if you will not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And I think that what that means is He won't forgive your trespasses. So take heed to your spirit, a spirit of bitterness. Take heed to your spirit, a spirit of unforgiveness in marriage. And then take heed to a spirit of lust that will destroy a marriage. Fight that with all the weapons of the Spirit because it's a real threat. Why have you lost interest in your wife? Maybe you've gained interest in someone else or something online that will destroy your affection for God and wife quickly and often with with difficulty of recovery. Take heed to your spirit, your disposition, your desires. And what's going on in your heart? What is ruling you in this marriage? Because God takes witness. He is witnessing. He knows. We can't hide it from God. But He's there to forgive us, to help us, to strengthen us in this covenant union called marriage. And then the third way they were dealing treachery. And I might mention one more thing in verse 15. He says, "And Did, we not, did He not make one yet? Had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and that none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. He made one. First of all, he's speaking against polygamy in the Old Testament. He made one man and one woman. Not one man and fifty wives. God suffered to be so, but in the beginning it was not so. But also he made them to be in a one flesh relationship. A oneness of purpose and aim and goal. A oneness in pursuing the holiness of God and the glory of God together. And yet had he the residue of the Spirit. Meaning the remnant of the Spirit means he, he could have done it a different way. It wasn't that he you know, didn't have the power Of course, the way he did it was the perfect way, but it wasn't because there weren't resources in the uh, divine mind to do it however he pleased. He did it this way. He made one. One man, one woman, one flesh. And then he says that he might seek a godly seed. You see, the way marrying an unbeliever works against a godly seed is that how then do you train your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, right? Now, he's not saying to an Israelite, well, if you remain in the covenant community, then you give birth to children of God. Well, they're not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither are they the seed of Abraham, or they counted the children of God. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. So if they repented and put away the strange wives and stayed within the covenant community, it meant the two parents now are going to be training their children in godliness. Ephesians 6.4, Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture, in the training and admonition, the, the understanding of the Lord. So, 
Now, how do you do that with an unbeliever? You can't. They're working against it. So God is after parents that keep the command together to train their children, to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and to direct them to Jesus Christ. To direct them to the glory of God. When you're not one, as He made them one, how does that happen? Father's working, the mother's training them in the false gods, what she loves, or vice versa. Don't you teach my children that, the man says. I don't love that. I don't love that man. Or you do it alone. And then finally, the last way they were dealing faithlessly or treacherously is that they were putting away their wives. You find this in verse 16. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away, for one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts, therefore take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously. God hates putting away. How sober, how careful, how cautious should you be in entering the marriage covenant? Because God doesn't provide for putting away with this, except a, a narrow thing called fornication. So I think it's worthwhile saying and talking about some of the reasons that are not grounds for putting away. I'm in misery. This is miserable. I'm in a miserable marriage. No grounds. That is not grounds for divorce. But yet our, our country is littered with divorces because I just was miserable. What's the cause of divorce? I was miserable. You won't find that one in the Bible as a grounds. I'm unhappy. I'm unhappy in this marriage. That is not cause for putting away. I don't love him anymore. I don't love her anymore. Not a cause. God says, love ye your enemies. He's my enemy. Go love him. She's my enemy. Love her. Do good to her. Pray for her. If she despitefully uses you and abuses you, that you may be called the children of God. For he sends his reign on the just and the unjust. There's no occasion in the Bible where an unhappy, a miserable, or a marriage, we say, I just don't feel for him anymore. That is not grounds. How important is it when you're going into the marriage to be praying, to be sinking, to be sober, to be cautious, to get counsel and not rush in? Because what God has joined together, don't let any man put it asunder. Selfishness. He's so selfish. She is so selfish. Sorry, that is not an occasion for divorce. It doesn't matter how selfish she is. You will not find that as an occasion in the Bible. God hates putting away. See, this brings us back to the front end of marriage. Because people run into marriage so quickly, so easily, without thinking, just emoting. And often, it ends in a tragic putting away. Poverty. 
He won't get a better job. We're just barely getting by. And on and on the reasons may go where people will justify putting away where God says, except for the cause of fornication, which means if there's an unbiblical divorce, all subsequent relationships are adulterous. And the person you marry, you cause to commit adultery. Matthew 19. See, that, that jars us. Maybe even now you're thinking, I'm not sure about that. Well, read the text. Because we're just not used to the language of the Bible and what God says because we're so used to people putting away their wives for what we think is a just cause. Well, the, the person was miserable. I mean, who wants to be in a miserable marriage? No one. But it's a covenant. And we even have to be careful with the cause of danger. And I'm speaking very carefully here. Because there's a great sensitivity in Christianity right now. Understanding that a wife is putting herself in a vulnerable position. Under the headship of a man. That can abuse it. And put herself in danger. But even then. There are ways that God has given to work through that. First with authorities called jail time, police, and church authority. And separation may be in order for which the marriage vow is still intact all through the separation. Trusting God to work through the details for each subsequent decision without rushing into a decision where God does not clearly speak immediately Divorce that person. Repentance may be brought about or the occasion may be brought that an unbeliever is then recognized and actions are taken as a result of authorities' involvement. We live in a culture. We live in a culture. A COVID-19 culture where our safety has been exalted to the place of deity. That my safety trumps every command of Scripture. That if I'm in any kind of danger, no matter what God says, I'm out. We need to be careful about such an attitude that we're going to Scripture. And that we are protecting. And that we are taking action against any man that would harm his wife in a physical way. And put her in danger. Swift, quick action as a church. And swift, quick action as the the occasion may call with the authorities of the land. And then asking God to give us wisdom how to proceed. Because the Lord hates putting away. And if we think about marriage ahead of time, trusting God... Then God will open the door. God will send you someone. God will prepare you to be the right spouse or the right person based on the right reason for the holiness of God, for the glory of God, for a a God-centered, Christ-centered marriage rather than a me-centered marriage where I'm just coming to get whatever I can out of this marriage, out of this person, out of this life, Where this person is going to serve me and give me what I want out of marriage. Surely, needs are met in marriage. But when they're idolatrous needs, then God has moved out of the center. And we place ourselves in the center of marriage. And we're starting on the wrong foot.
So in review, the Lord is a witness. He's a witness to who we marry, and He tells us how to prepare in His Word. How should we be thinking when we enter into marriage? The Lord bears witness against how we do marriage. He is for marriage, according to His Word. So He witnesses it, He joins it, He's the... She's the wife of your youth. He's the wife of your husband. It's a covenant of companionship that God is calling on us to either start pursuing once again through repentance or to keep pursuing and keep growing. And then finally, the Lord is a witness against divorce with the exception of the occasions that He states specifically. In all other occasions, we are bound by our covenant obligation to remain in that marriage, seeking help getting help, trying to get repentance to the glory and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.